Welcome to The Threat Show, powered by Fletch. People that come into this that are not in the know, that don't have the decoder ring or the Rosetta Stone or the Duolingo for cybersecurity, maybe they should have a course on there for that. But and we kind of do it inherently. We don't even think about it, but with the, the amount of acronyms that we use without qualifying them and, and just kind of going through because the two of us, we speak that language, but it gets very confusing for, for folks that are coming into this industry because it's basically learning a whole new language. Hi, and welcome to The Threat Show. I'm Darian Kinland, VP of Technology here at Fletch. And with me each week, every week, is my co-host, Chris Wilder, Director of Research over at Tag Cyber. Welcome back to the show, Chris. Thanks, Darian. I'm out of breath from taking my garbage up the road, <laughs> chasing the garbage truck, but I'm happy to be here. <laughs> so. There you go. Well, I guess to get things started, let's check out the threat landscape and the interesting threats for this week. So if we look and we compare what it was like week by week, we're certainly seeing kind of a recovery, <laughs> not a good thing, yeah. right? But in terms of major threats, we're back to the new normal, but we'll see if this ends up changing more by second quarter, right? Which is literally in maybe yeah. a couple of days, right? And we're, we're almost at the end of the quarter. Crazy yeah. time flies. No, the bad guys are certainly making their numbers. Right, exactly, exactly. So when we double click on the actual details of, of these threats, we see 13 that ended up emerging. 10 went mainstream, and then roughly nine were inactive. We haven't seen any activity on them over the past 30 days. So while the levels have gotten back to, I guess, normal, the new normal now, we're certainly still seeing quite a bit of activity over the past week. And that kind of leads into, you know, what are some of the unique, interesting threats that we found? And gosh, it's it's all over the place, right? I mean, yeah. we've got a number from North Korea. We've got vulnerabilities tied to chat GPT, an update on the Acropolis vulnerability and a naming conflict, it seems. Surprise, surprise, right? Not quite what you were expecting, Chris, perhaps? You know, I, was, I probably should have like a little whiteboard in my house counting down the days until the first chat GPT vulnerability comes or the first attack. <laughs> so we hit it. Didn't take long. Yeah. Fair enough. Yeah. So let's get into the details. It's not every day that you see a threat group get promoted to becoming nation state status. In this case, Mandiant's kind of anointed what used to be called Lazarus, Kimsuki, yeah. and a couple of other names to now APT43 targeting U.S. organizations, Europe, Japan, South Korea. For the past five years, it seems like it's probably longer than that, but okay, I'll take their word for it. And they have been busy during this time period. It's It's been crazy. One of the interesting findings that the larger threat group in North Korea has been linked to is unique ways to launder money stolen through crypto mining. <laughs> so literally they take the stolen funds from victim organizations and they use those funds to essentially rent compute cycles on farms, mining farms that then mine for more cryptocurrency that ends up being not flagged or attributed to them, which they can use for whatever other nefarious purposes later. It's very interesting but probably not unique to just North Korea. Would that be fair to say, Chris? No, no, absolutely not. And it's not surprising Lazarus got elevated to nation state level. I mean, if you think about kind of these rogue actor groups, Lazarus is 
basically the, the Google of hackers. I mean, there's, they, they've grown so fast. There's so much of it. They do so many different things that, you know, they got all their funding from the government. So just call it like it is. And I'm glad Mandy is starting to talk about this more and elevate these threat actors to, you know, to where they should be. And I would almost call them terrorist groups, but yeah, you know, absolutely. And they've been going after primarily Western organizations, yeah. targeting pretty much every major vertical. It's really a matter of, okay, what industry vertical have they not gotten after yet? And maybe just a matter of time, perhaps, who knows? <laughs> well, they, they've been hitting Southwest Asia quite a bit too. And, and then obviously massive targets and attack and groups popping up over the Ukraine and Russia challenge. Sure. So. Just a whole new world of opportunities and their markets just opened up. And if you want to talk about one of their most recent tactics, it was actually discovered yesterday. CrowdStrike posted through social media that they've observed a supply chain attack against a soft phone application company called 3CX. Apparently, it's been attributed to a subcluster from Lazarus or APT43 called Labyrinth Colima. And you might be wondering, well, what the heck is 3CX? It turns out that's a very popular VoIP platform used by many, many, many Fortune 100 or Global 1000 customers. So it's no surprise that this presents a rich, juicy target from their standpoint. As of literally 24 hours later, every major cybersecurity company out there is now posting their own analysis and blog of what the heck this threat is about. So chances are, if you have an EDR deployed, as long as you keep it up to date, it should mitigate or prevent these sorts of infections. But it's pretty eye-opening from a supply chain perspective you know, the types of targeting that North Korea is going after at this point. I guess it really isn't a surprise from that standpoint. No, not a surprise. I mean, they got, they just reading through this, it looks like they found the infiltration point through through a secret on GitHub. Software supply chain is one of the biggest areas of concern for most companies right now, just because, especially if they're doing any open source development, putting that out there and, you know, the bad guys are sitting there waiting for it. Not too terribly surprising. Be careful what you put out there. They took down their GitHub repository, but I certainly think that every company has a responsibility if they're doing open source development to publish an SBOM with the software bill of materials. And I think it's just a matter of good cyber hygiene and don't put things out onto GitHub that you don't want to go out to bad guys. Exactly. Speaking of open source, it turns out that there's a little bit more detail regarding the data leak vulnerability that was discovered with OpenAI's chat GPT platform. If you may recall, they had to take down their service about a week or so ago because someone discovered that they were able to see chat histories from other users. And it turns out that the source of that problem was traced back to a vulnerability tracked within Redis. Originally not a cybersecurity issue. This was originally just a a logic bug within the software. But now we can see that it has real world implications because this otherwise obscure bug that would only trigger very rarely turns out you can actually trigger it (laughs) more frequently than expected. And this now causes breach of confidentiality. So if you have Redis, you definitely want to upgrade or patch. I believe there are patches available for this. And it's it's kind of eye-opening that 
even if you haven't necessarily exposed this sort of infrastructure directly to the internet, you, you could still be at risk depending upon how you use open source software. Yeah, like I said, this is not a surprise at all. This is going to be the first of many, many, many conversations we have about ChatGPT. If somebody wanted to see my ChatGPT history, it's, you know, what what is threat intelligence? You know, how do I do my job? <laughs> but uh, it's you you know, pretty pretty nebulous stuff that, you know, most most people, it's really nothing in there that is, is really mind boggling. But this will be one of many. And I think we'll see this uh, more and more trends on this one. Yeah. So. Yeah, I mean, the most popular services out there seem to get hit the most with these obscure issues and yeah. it becomes kind of an education point for others, I guess. Yeah, it's probably the most leveraged platform or piece of software that's ever been developed. And so you're going to find these vulnerabilities as more and more people have to integrate to it. Absolutely. So moving on, chapter three in the Acropolis saga. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> right. Now Microsoft has finally released a patch, probably about a week later, plugging the problem with their screenshot tools. If you recall, we talked about it last week where, yeah. you know, someone would try to take a screenshot and then maybe crop it or alter it to try to hide or remove sensitive information from that screenshot. And even though the tool visually looked like that information was gone, it was still there within the file and someone enterprising could go back and reconstruct any sort of redacted or otherwise cropped information. So with this latest fix, hopefully Microsoft has finally closed the book on this issue. We'll see. <laughs> but it's unlikely that it's just limited to what? Google Pixel phones and Microsoft Windows. Yeah. I kind of wonder if this thing is present elsewhere that we just haven't discovered yet. You know what I mean, Chris? I think you're spot on with that. There's obviously a reason why, you know, because taking pictures of credit cards and, you know, people do that all the time. But, you know, as a general rule, don't do that. But I also think you're right. But there is obviously something probably a little bit more nefarious that we don't we don't see because we've talked about this two weeks in a row. So there's got to be something that's something bigger that's coming and there's a, bit, a bigger purpose around this very specific attack vector. All right. It's like, I think maybe the rule of thumb is, look, if you're going to take a screenshot, make sure that the contents of what you're taking just has no sensitive information on it before you... Yeah. Click snap, right? So that way you don't have to crop out anything. You don't have to redact anything. You're just sending what you originally expect to send, right? Yeah. Yeah. I think we're as a society become, like I said, we're putting security and privacy under convenience. And right. it seems like a pretty easy one. Like I said last week, this one's just stupid. But, yeah. you know, now we're talking about it this week. Yeah. Maybe it's not so much. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. So another problem. On a, on a different topic, another problem that's come up in this field is around naming, right? There are so many names that are assigned to so many different things. We've got multiple names for threat groups. We've got names assigned to malware. We've got helpful, hopefully memorable names assigned to major vulnerabilities. Let's look at an example that's actually a problem where we've had kind of a name collision. So in this particular article, we're looking at a type of new malware discovered by Uptick's threat intelligence teams focused on essentially stealing data out of Mac OS-based systems. And so logically, the researcher involved decided, ah, we'll just call this Mac Stealer, right? 
simple enough. Except there is also within less than 24 hours, another finding about not malware, but about a vulnerability focused on the 802.11 Wi-Fi standard, right? And it's not tied to malware. There's no malware associated with it. Instead, what they found in, in the research team here was that someone could potentially impersonate a wireless client and reroute traffic to another system using this vulnerability. And so what did the researchers call this thing? Well, they called it Mac Stealer, not because it's Mac OS related, but because the vulnerability occurs at the media access control layer within the network infrastructure. So as a practitioner, it can be very difficult sometimes to figure out if someone mentions the name of something, what the heck they're talking about. There's a very interesting problem here where people want to try to come up with generic, maybe memorable names for things, but they don't necessarily understand the implications because these arguably two different things have the same name, but they mean something completely different. And this isn't the first time this happens. I mean, this has happened before in the past. Is that yeah. fair to say, Chris? Uh, it happens not just in, in our industry, but it happens in, in every industry that is, has technical people in it. Specifically with cybersecurity, though, we, we do ourselves a massive disservice because we, as a collective group, don't do the best job of communicating. You know, we come right. up with ideas and push it out. Yeah, we just there is just no consistency, and and I'll tell you I'll tell you a quick story. I serve on as a voting member on the NIST Smart Grid panel, and we're we're trying to write the standards for Smart Grid. And this is a group that was founded by Vince Cerf, arguably the I guess father of the internet or uh, whatever, but an interesting cat. But we spent three years trying to figure out what words we're going to use, and <laughs> we argued about the semantics of what we're going to call things. Versus, you know, trying to put down what it is that we're trying to accomplish. Right. And I think we we tend in the security world, and especially as analysts, you're right. They just want to put something out there that's pithy and catchy and rememberable, but it's doing the world a disservice. Because right. if I saw a Mac Steeler vulnerability, I would think it's Mac OS straight away. Right. Until I had to get in, I was like, this has nothing to do with Wi-Fi. <laughs> so, right. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So like... Yeah. If there's one ask we could make for security researchers that are coming up with these names, just do a Google search, you know, try to search to see if there's any conflicts or collisions and try to pick something a little bit more creative, maybe. I mean, we have a Rosetta Stone for vulnerabilities, right? That's yeah. the whole point of the CVE convention. The problem, though, is that it's a bunch of numbers. It's a jumble of numbers. And if you ask any operator hey, what are the top five memorable CVEs that you can remember? The chances are they're not going to rattle off these numbers, right? They're going to rattle off the names associated with these numbers. So we get it, right? There's There's got to be a better way to help people keep track of things without it being eyes glazing over in the process. But we're not yeah. there yet. And it's just no. it's the reality of what we have to deal with day to day. And some of the feedback I get about this show and our profession in general is 
People that come into this that are not in the know, that don't have the decoder ring or the Rosetta Stone or right. you know, the Duolingo for cybersecurity, maybe they should have a course on there for that. But one of the kind of the pushbacks I get about, about our show is, and we kind of do it inherently, we don't even think about it, but with the, the amount of acronyms that we use without qualifying them and, and just kind of going through because the two of us, we speak that language, but you're right, it, it gets very confusing for, for folks that are coming into this industry because it's basically learning a whole new language. Or if you're a decision maker and you see something like that, it could be very confusing about, you know, oh my gosh, I've got a Mac OS problem or I've got a PowerShell right. problem. Do we have a PowerShell? So the answer is yes, yeah. <laughs> if you have a Windows machine. But so I, you know, we're not going to come up with the answer today. But right. I, I think we as, as practitioners, I think two of us as well, as we do this show, I think we can do a better job of you know, trying to explain a little bit simpler terms and talk about not using as many acronyms. And it's it's hard because we give ourselves our own Tourette syndrome when it comes to acronyms. <laughs> yeah. And part of it is just figuring <clears throat> out what the rest of the cybersecurity industry is, is calling things for better or worse, yeah. right? If it were just the two of us, we could probably invent our own language and it makes a lot of sense. But the reality is we have to communicate and tie in information yeah. from all these other sources and they don't necessarily use the same lingo all the time. We could do the same thing with just replace cybersecurity practitioners with teenagers. I have no <laughs> idea what they're saying. I know you what know. you mean. But yeah, it's a, you know, I just think just we need just to be aware. Absolutely. And chances are when you see something like this and yeah. assume that there's the, another name that's linked to it in the headlines, it makes sense to kind of read through the details and make sure that it's actually the same thing. Generally, you don't have this problem when CVEs are mentioned across no. articles, but definitely have this problem if a handy, memorable name is mentioned. So in this particular case, this particular malware isn't necessarily um, that important compared to just all the other malware that an operator has to deal with. If you keep your EDR up to date, you're probably gonna be fine defending against this type of threat, but it can just be confusing from a naming convention. And yeah. in terms of the vulnerability tied to this 802.11 standard, this is the problem if you're concerned about any attackers physically near your Wi-Fi networks that could potentially co-opt or reroute traffic to their own infrastructure. It's not something that's a problem, though, if you're in an isolated area or if your infrastructure is entirely in the cloud. This is absolutely right for man in the middle. Yeah. And the weird thing is, like, this is a problem with the Wi-Fi standard. So... It affects every Wi-Fi compatible device across every major platform, every given operating system. It's going to require, you know, an updated standard to get released and a whole bunch of patches to get rolled out for every possible network interface card to address this thing. I, I don't, this is not an easy fix. When there's a bug in a standard, it usually takes a couple of years to resolve. Yeah. I think that's our show. We covered a ton of different topics this week. Thank you so much for your insight, Chris. And to our audience, if you have any questions, you have particular topics you want us to cover in future shows, please DM us at The Threat Show and we'll cover them next time we do this session. Thanks again. Cool. Thanks, Darian. Thank you for tuning into The Threat Show. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe to us on YouTube 
Give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and interact with us on Twitter at The Threat Show. Also, be sure to subscribe to Fletch's interactive newsletter and Trending Threats app to go deeper into the stories we discuss and the Threat Index. Be sure to stay tuned to stay ahead of threats.